Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Crime Candy. So, let's get into it. So, around midnight on August 16th, 1996, following a day spent together drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana, 18-year-old Daryl Grenard Atkins, born November 6, 1977, and his accomplice, William Jones, walked to a nearby convenience store where they abducted Eric Nesbitt, an airman from nearby Langley Air Base. Unsatisfied with his $60, they found in his wallet. Atkins drove Nesbitt in his own vehicle to a nearby ATM and forced him to withdraw a further $200. In spite of Nesbitt's pleas, the two abductors then drove him to an isolated location where he was shot eight times, killing him. Footage of Atkins and Jones in the vehicle with Nesbitt were captured, was captured, excuse me, on the ATM's CCTV camera, which showed Nesbitt in the middle between the two men and leaning across Jones to withdraw money. Further forensics evidence implicating the two men were found in Nesbitt's abandoned vehicle. The two suspects were quickly tracked down and arrested. In custody, each man claimed that the other had pulled the trigger. Atkins' version of events, however, was found to contain a number of inconsistencies. Doubts concerning Atkins' testimonies were strengthened when a cellmate claimed Atkins had confessed to him that he had shot Nesbitt. A deal of life imprisonment was negotiated with Jones in return for his full testimony at Atkins. The jury decided that Jones' version of events was more coherent incredible, and convicted Atkins of capital murder. During the penalty phase of the trial, the defense presented Atkins' school records and the results of an IQ test carried out by clinical psychologist Dr. Evan Nelson confirmed that he had an IQ of 59. On this basis, they proposed that he was mildly mentally retarded. Atkins was nevertheless sentenced to death. On appeal, the Supreme Court of Virginia affirmed the conviction, but reversed the, sa- reversed the sentence after finding them that an improper sentencing verdict form had been used. At retrial, the prosecution proved two aggravating factors under Virginia law, that Atkins posed a risk of future dangerousness based on a string of previous violent convictions, and that the offense was confirmed the defense was committed in a vile manner. The state's witness, Dr. Stanton Samow, countered the defense's arguments that Atkins was intellectually disabled by stating that Atkins' vocabulary, general knowledge, and behavior suggested that he possessed at most average intelligence. As a result, Atkins' death sentence was upheld. The Virginia Supreme Court subsequently affirmed this sentence based on a prior Supreme Court decision, Penry v. Lanau. Justice Cynthia D. Kaiser authored author the five-member majority. Justice Leroy Roundtree Hassel Sr. and Lawrence L. Coons Jr. each authored dissenting opinions and joined in each other's dissents. Due to what Due to what is perceived to be a shift in the judgments of state legislators as to whether the intellectually disabled are appropriate candidates for execution in the 13 years since Penrow was decided, 
the Supreme Court agreed to review Atkins' death sentence. The court, the court heard oral arguments in the case on February 20th, 2002. So the main question that the U.S. Supreme Court was asking was, is the execution of mentally retarded persons cruel and unusual punishment prohibited by the Eighth Amendment? So the Eighth Amendment, the U.S. Constitution, forbids cruel and unusual punishments. In the ruling, it was stated that unlike other provisions of the Constitution, the Eighth Amendment should be interpreted in light of the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. The best evidence on this score was determined to be the judgment of state legislators. Accordingly, the court had previously found that the death penalty was inappropriate for the crime of rape in Coker v. Georgia or those convicted of felony murder who neither themselves killed, attempted to kill, or tended to kill in Edmund v. Florida. The court found that the Eighth Amendment forbids the imposition of the death penalty in these cases because most of the legislators that have recently addressed the matter have rejected the death penalty for these offenders, and the court will generally defer to these judgments, to the judgments of those bodies. The court then described how a national consensus that the intellectually disabled should not be executed had emerged. In 1986, Georgia was the first state to outlaw the execution of the intellectually disabled. Congress followed two years later, and the next year, Maryland joined these two jurisdictions. Thus, when the court confronted the issue in Penry in 1989, the court cannot say that a national consensus against executing the intellectually disabled had emerged. Over the next 12 years, 19 more states exempted the intellectually disabled from capital punishment under their laws, bringing the total number of states to 21 plus the federal government. While there are 50 states, 19 don't allow the death penalty under any circumstance making 21 out of 31 a clear majority of the death penalty states. In light of the consistency of direction to change towards a prohibition on the execution of the intellectually disabled and the relatively rarity of such extent executions in states that still allowed it, the court proclaimed that a national consensus has developed against it. The court, however, left it to individual states to make the difficult decision regarding what determines intellectual disability. Also, the relationship between mental retardation and the penological purposes served by the death penalty justifies the conclusion that executing the intellectually disabled is cruel and unusual punishment that the Eighth Amendment should forbid. In other words, unless it can be shown that executing the intellectual disabled promotes the goals of retribution and deterrence, doing so is nothing more than purposeless and needless imposition of pain and suffering, making the death penalty cruel and unusual punishment in those cases. Being intellectually disabled means that a person not only has substandard intellectual functioning, but also significant limitations in adaptive skills such as communication, self-care, 
and self-direction. These deficiencies typically manifest before the age of 18. Although they can, they can know the difference between right and wrong, these deficiencies mean they have a lesser ability to learn from experience, engage in logical reasoning, and understand the reaction of others. This means that inflicting a death penalty on one intellectually disabled individual is less likely to deter other intellectually disabled individuals from committing crimes. As a retribution, society's interest in seeing that a criminal gets his just desserts means that the death penalty must be confined to the most serious of murders, not simply the average murder. The goal of retribution is not served by imposing the death penalty on a group of people who have significantly lesser capacity to understand why they are being executed. Because the intellectually disabled are not able to communicate with the same sophistication as the average offender, there is a greater likelihood that their deficiency in communicative ability will be interpreted by jurors as a lack of remorse for their crimes. They typically make poor witnesses, being more prone to suggestion and willing to confess in order to placate or please their questionnaire. Thus, there is a greater risk that the jury may impose the death penalty despite the existence of evidence that suggests that a lesser penalty should be imposed. In light of the involving standards of decency that the Eighth Amendment demands, the, facts of the, the fact that the goals of retribution and deterrence are not served as well in the execution of the intellectually disabled and the heightened risk that the death penalty will be imposed erroneously, the court concluded that the Eighth Amendment forbids the execution of the intellectually disabled. In dissents, Justices Antler, Antony Scalia, Clarence Thomas, and Chief Justice William Rehnquist argue that in spite of the increased number of states that had outlawed the execution of the intellectually disabled, there was no clear national consensus, and even if one existed, the Eighth Amendment provided no basis for using such measures of opinion to determine what is cruel and unusual. Justice Anson Scalia commented in his dissent that seldom has an option of this court rested so obviously upon nothing but the personal views of its members. The citing of an amicus brief from the European Union also drew criticism from Chief Justice Rehnquist, who denounced the court's decision to place weight on foreign laws. Although Atkins' case and ruling may have been may have saved other mentally handicapped inmates for the death penalty. A jury in Virginia decided on July 2005 that Atkins was intelligent enough to be executed on the basis of that the constant contact he had with his lawyers provided intellectual stimulation and raised his IQ of 70, making him competent to be put to death under Virginia law. The prosecution had argued that his poor school performance was caused by his use of alcohol and drugs, and that his lower scores and, I and earlier IQ tests were tainted. His execution date was set for January, sorry, excuse me, December 2nd, 2005, but was later stayed. In January 2008, however, Circuit Court Judge Prentice Smiley, who was revisiting the matter whether Atkins was mentally handicapped, received allegations of prosecutorial misconduct.
These allegations, if true, would have authorized a new trial for Atkins. After two days of testimony on the matter, Smiley determined that prosecutorial, prosecutorial misconduct had occurred. At this juncture, Smiley could have vacated Atkins' conviction and ordered a new trial. Instead, Smiley determined the evidence was overwhelming that Atkins had participated in a felony murder and commuted Atkins' sentence to life in prison. Prosecutors sought writs of man mandamus and prohibition in the Virginia Supreme Court on the matter, claiming Smiley had exceeded his judicial authority with his ruling. So on June 4, 2009, the Virginia Supreme Court, in a 5-2 decision, ruled that neither mandamus or nor prohibition was available to overturn the court's decision to commute the sentence. Okay, well, oh, sorry. Um, so essentially, Atkins was, instead of getting the death penalty, he was basically had a safe execution and he was given life in prison instead. Okay, now on to the next case. So basically, what I'm doing today is doing three cases that do have something in common in the end. But I won't really tell you until I go, until I finish through cases and basically tell you what they sort of do have in common. Even though they don't seem like they do. Next is Roper v. Simon. So in 1993, in the state of Missouri, 17-year-old Christopher Simmons, along with two younger friends, Charles Benjamin and John Tesmore, concocted a plan to murder Shirley Knight Crook. The plan was to commit burglary and murder by breaking and entering, tying up a victim, and tying up a victim. The three met in the middle of the night. However, Tesmer dropped out of the plot. Simmons and Benjamin broke in Miss Knight Kirk's home, bound her hands, and covered her eyes. They drove her to a state park and threw her off a bridge. Later, she was found dead by drowning. Once the case was brought to trial, the evidence was overwhelming. Simmons had confessed to the murder, performed a videotape reenactment at the crime scene, and there was testimony from Tesper against him that showed premeditation. Simmons discussed the plot in advance and later bragged about the crime. The jury returned a guilty verdict, even considering mitigating factors, no criminal history, and his age. The jury recommended a death sentence, which the trial court imposed. Simmons moved for the trial court to be set aside the conviction and sentence, citing in part ineffective assistance of counsel. His age and thus impulsiveness, along with a troubled background, were brought up as issues that Simmons' claims should have been raised at the sentencing phase. The trial court rejected this motion and Simmons appealed. The case worked its way up the court system, with the courts continuing to uphold the death sentence. However, in light of the 2002 U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Atkins v. Virginia that overturned the death penalty for the intellectually disabled, Simmons filed a new petition for state post-conviction relief. The Supreme Court of Missouri concluded that a national consensus has developed against the execution of juvenile offenders and held that such punishment now violates the Eighth Amendment's prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. They sentenced Simmons to life imprisonment without parole. 
The state of Missouri appealed the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, which agreed to hear the case. So the main question they were asking was, does the execution of minors violate the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment found in the Eighth Amendment and applied to the states through the incorporation, incorporation doctrine of the Fourteenth Amendment? This case was argued on October 13, 2004. The appeal challenged the constitutionality of capital punishment for persons who were juveniles when their crimes were committed, citing the Eighth Amendment protection against cruel and unusual punishment. A 1988 Supreme Court decision, Thompson v. Oklahoma, barred execution of offenders under the age of 16. In 1989, another case, Stanford v. Kentucky, upheld the possibility of capital punishment for offenders who were 16 or 17 years old when they committed the capital offense. The same day in 1989, the Supreme Court ruled in Penry v. Lanny Lanai, that it was permissible to execute the intellectually disabled. However, in 2002, the decision was overruled in Atkins v. Virginia, where the court held that evolving standards of decency had made the execution of the mentally retarded cruel and unusual punishment and thus constitutional. Under the evolving standards of, de standards of decency test, the court held that it was cruel and unusual punishment to execute a person who was under the age of 18 at the time of the murder. Writing for the majority, Justice Kennedy cited a body of sociological and scientific research that found that juveniles have a lack of maturity and a sense of responsibility compared to adults. Adolescents were found to be overrepresented statistically in virtually every category of restless behavior. The court noted that in recognition of the comparative immaturity and irresponsibility of juveniles, almost every state prohibited those under age 18 from voting, serving on juries, or marrying, marrying without parental consent. The studies also found that juveniles are more vulnerable to negative influences and outside pressures, including peer pressure. They have less control or experience with the control over their own environment. They also like the freedom that adults have to escape a criminogenic setting. In support of the national consensus position, the court noted that the states were reducing the frequency by which the, they applied capital punishment to juvenile offenders. At the time of the decision, 20 states had the juvenile, offend, juvenile death penalty on the books, but only six states had executed prisoners since 1989 for crimes committed as juveniles. Only three states had done so since 1994, Oklahoma, Texas, and Virginia. Furthermore, five of the states that allowed the juvenile death penalty at the time 1981 1989 case, excuse me, had since abolished it. The court also looked to practices in other countries to support the holding. Between 1990 and the time of the case, the court said only seven countries other than the U.S. had executed juvenile, juvenile offenders. Iran, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Nigeria, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and China. 
Just as Kennedy noted that since 1990, each of these each of those countries had either abolished the death penalty for juveniles or made public disavowal the practice, and that the U.S. stood alone in the allowing execution of juvenile offenders. However, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Pakistan, and Yemen continued to execute juvenile offenders after 2005, with Iran executing three juvenile offenders in January 2018 alone. Execution of juveniles have also been reported in South Sudan. The court also noted that the U.S. and Somalia had not ratified Article 37 of the U.N. Convention on the Rights of the Child, which expressly prohibits capital punishment for crimes committed by juveniles. Justice Scalia wrote his dissent, joined by Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justice Thomas. Justice O'Connor also wrote a dissenting opinion. The dissents put into question whether a national consensus had formed among the state laws, citing the fact that at the time of the ruling, only 18 of the 38 states allowing the death penalty, which was 47%, prohibited the execution of the juveniles. However, the primary objective of the court's two originalists, Justice Scalia and Thomas, was whether such a consensus was relevant. Justice Scalia argued that the appropriate question was whether or not there was presently consensus against the execution of juveniles, but rather whether the execution of such defendants was considered cruel and unusual punishment at the point at which the Bill of Rights was ratified. In addition, Justice Scalia objected, also objected in general to the court's willingness to take guidance from foreign law in interpreting the Constitution. His dissent questioned not only, take, not only the relevant relevance of foreign law, but also claimed the court would invoke alien law when it agrees with it, one's own thinking and ignore it otherwise, noting that in the case of abor abortion, U.S. laws are less restrictive than the in international norm. Scalia also attacked the majority opinion as being fundamentally anti-democratic. His dissent cited a passage from the Federalist Papers and arguing that the role of the judiciary in the constitutional scheme is to interpret the law as formulated and democratically suggest selected legislators. He argued that the courts exist to rule on what the law says, not what it should say, and that is for a legislator acting the manner prescribed in Article 5 of the Constitution to offer amendments to the Constitution in light of the evolving standard of decency. Not for the court to arbitrarily make de facto amendments, he challenged the right of unelected lawyers to discern moral values and to oppose them on the people in the name of flexible readings of the constitutional text. So they made it illegal to execute mine, to execute children under the age of 18 who had committed the crime. So the implications of this ruling were immediately felt in the state of Virginia, where Louis Boyd Malvo became no longer eligible for the death penalty for his role in the Beltway sniper attacks that terrorized Washington, D.C. area in October 2002. At the time of the attacks, Malvo was 17 years old. Malvo had already been served the death penalty in his first trial for the murder of FBI employee Linda Franklin in Falls Church, Virginia, and had put a guilty in another case in Spotsylvania County. However, he had yet 
to face trial in Prince William County, Virginia, as well as Washington, D.C., Washington State, Texas, Maryland, Louisiana, California, Arizona, and Alabama. So in light of this Supreme Court decision, the prosecutors in Prince William County decided not to prove the charges against Malco, Malvo. At the outset of the Beltway Sniper prosecutions, the primary reason for extraditing the two suspects from Maryland were where they were arrested to, to Virginia, was the difference in how the two states deal with the death penalty. While the death penalty was allowed in Maryland, it was only applied to persons who were adults at the time of their crimes, whereas Virginia had also allowed the death penalty for offenders who had been juveniles when their crimes were committed. So in ex parte Adams, the Supreme Court of Alabama remanded the death penalty sentence of a juvenile for rehearing in the lower court in light of the Roper decision, which was released while the Adams case was pending appeal. Justice Tom Parker, who had participated in the prosecution of the case, recused himself. He published an op-ed in the Birmingham News to criticize his non-recused colleagues for their decision. Justice Parker wrote that state Supreme Courts may decline to follow bad U.S. Supreme Court precedents because those decisions bide only the parties to the particular case. The state sought review in the U.S. Supreme Court raising a single issue, whether this court should reconsider its decision in Roper v. Simmons. The Supreme Court denied certiorari, declined to take the case review on January on June 6, 19, 2006, without a published dissent. So here is the last case, Hall v. Florida. Freddie Lee Hall was tried, convicted, and sentenced to, sorry, death for the 1978 murder of Carol Hurst. Hall sought a writ of habeas corpus in a safe execution in state court, which was denied. Hall then sought a writ of habeas corpus in federal court and was denied without an evidentiary hearing. Hall appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit Court, which reversed in part and remanded the case for a hearing regarding the potential effects of his absence from the courtroom during the trial and ineffective counsel. On remand, the district court again denied habeas corpus and held that Hall's absences from the courtroom were harmless and that they deliberately bypassed ineffective counsel claims. The Court of Appeals affirmed. Hall then petitioned the Supreme Court of Florida for habeas corpus relief based on the Supreme Court in Hitchcock v. Duggar, which held that all mitigating factors should be considered rather than that just the mitigating factors listed in the relevant statutes. The Supreme Court of Florida denied the petition and held that no error occurred in sentencing. After the governor signed his second death warrant, Hall filed a motion to vacate the sentence, which the trial court denied by holding that the Supreme Court of Florida decision barred further review of the case. The Supreme Court of Florida disagreed and held that the case involved additional non-record facts that had not been considered in the previous review. The case was vacated and remanded for new sentencing. At the new sentencing trial, the trial court held that Hall's mental retardation was a mitigating factor with unquantifiable weight, and he was again sentenced to death. The Supreme Court of Florida affirmed.
So in 2002, the Supreme Court decided the case of Atkins v. Virginia, in which the, which the court held that the execution of mentally retarded defendants constituted cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment. Hall filed a motion to declare certain sections of the Florida Death Penalty Statute unconstitutional, based on this decision, and filed a claim to be exempt from the death penalty. Under the ruling, the trial court held a hearing to determine if Hall was eligible for such a claim and found that he was not because of the first prong of the test, whether he had an IQ below 70 could be not be met. The Supreme Court of Florida affirmed. The court narrowed the discretion under which U.S. states can designate an individual convicted of murder as too intellectually incapacitated to be executed. The court prohibited states in borderline cases from relying on only from relying only on intelligent test scores to determine whether a death row inmate is eligible to be executed. States must look beyond IQ scores when inmate tests are in a range of 70 to 75. IQ tests have a margin of error, and those inmates whose score fail, excuse me, fall within the margin must be allowed to present other evidence of mental disability. The court further held that the states may not use a rigid rule that denies leniency to defendants with severe mental disabilities simply because they score above 70 on an IQ test. Hall had scored a 71 instead of a 70 on an IQ test. Justice Anthony, Scal Anthony M. Kennedy wrote for the majority that this rigid rule the court now holds creates an unacceptable risk that persons with an intellectually disabled will be executed, and thus is unconstitutional. If an individual claiming intellectual incapacity has an IQ score that falls somewhere between 70 and 75, then that individual's lawyers must be allowed to offer additional clinical evidence of intellectual, intellectual deficit, including, most importantly, the inability to learn basic skills and adapt to changing circumstances. The court also adopted the term intellectually disabled to, place, to replace mentally retarded, which had been used in prior opinions. Intellectually disability is a condition characterized by significant limitations in both intellectual functioning and in adaptive behavior, which covers many everyday social and practical skills and originates before the age of 18. According to the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, Justice Alito filed a dissenting opinion. He was joined by Chief Justice Roberts, Scalia, and Thomas. And in his dissent, Alito, Alito criticized the majority's reliance on the views of medical experts, saying that the justices had overruled Atkins based largely on the positions adopted by private, powerful organizations. He also argued that by overruling Atkins, the court had, the court had replaced the framework established in previous Eighth Amendment cases with a uniform national rule that is conceptually unsound and likely results in confusion. So in November 2016, the Florida Supreme Court vacated Hall's death sentence. 
what is what do all these cases have essentially to do with each other? Well, if you were paying attention, and I hope you were throughout the entire episode, essentially these three cases more or less had to do with being intellectually disabled and essentially if you're intellectually disabled it is cruel and unusual punishment under the eight amendments to execute someone and they did that they did that in atkins and they said if you're under age 18 you were it is essentially at the time you committed the murder committed a heinous crime it is also for illegal for cruel and unusual punishment for you to be executed as well. And then in the last case, they wanted to make sure they instead of replay, they instead of using mentally retarded, they had replaced it with intellectually disabled. But the problem is now each state does not have a they. The most recent news that I can find on being in on the intellectual disability is that each state has to figure out a way, a test essentially, to prove that a person is intellectually disabled and in order to be, in order not to be executed. But the problem is each state has a different test and doesn't have the same. So it's like an uphill battle and unless you can prove to the Supreme Court, the appeal your case to take it all the way to U.S. Supreme Court and they sometimes won't hear a case, it's like... Where do you go from there? So there's never been a the the most recent case that was the one where they were like, well, we have to have a more clear rule, and I guess they tried. So I hope you guys were and hope you guys enjoyed this episode at least. And if you want more, you can always click on go on if you're listening to this on Spotify. If you click on the little bell underneath, you can click on that and it'll subscribe you'll subscribe for more updates and on the instagram i will be posting pictures and that instagram is crime underscore candy and i hope you guys have a good week bye